Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and my co-host is Aaron Miller. We will have our usual news roundup for you to kick things off today. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the navigation company here's decision to withdraw its apps from Windows 10 and Windows 8. We'll then talk about Sony's uh, big virtual reality announcement from this week. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about something that hasn't been as high profile in the news, but as a small company that's developing uh, electrocardiogram devices for smartphones and for the Apple Watch specifically and what that might mean. Uh, our, uh, excuse me, our main topic today, well, rather than being a question of the week, which is our normal format for our main topic, we're just going to do a preview of next week's Apple event. Um, so this is the event that's happening next Monday uh, out in Cupertino. So we'll be talking about that, talking about some of the things that we're expecting to see there and, and um, the significance of some of those things. And then our third topic will be, uh, another Apple one actually, will be about the fact that Apple News was finally opened up to anybody who's interested in publishing to the platform, along with some changes to the way that advertising will work on the platform as well uh, that was announced this week. So that will be our third topic. And then we'll wrap up. Uh, next week, I would guess that we will be doing uh, largely f an episode largely focused on the actual announcements from uh, the Apple event on Monday. We may still do one or two other things as well, but I think we'll probably do something shortly after the event itself on the news from the event as a sort of follow-up to what we'll talk about today. So let's kick off with the news roundup. Uh, the first bit of news was uh, the navigation company here, which used to be part of the, the Nokia company and is now owned by a consortium of German car manufacturers, uh, announced that it was pulling its uh, third-party apps from the Windows 8 and Windows 10 platforms. They had some vaguely referenced technical reason why it was going to be very hard for them to maintain their apps. Nobody seems to quite understand what that was. But in essence, it was largely a decision about uh, being where the potential customers are and the fact that they, they're really still not on uh, Windows Mobile in particular uh, and Windows 10 in general. So, Aaron, what was your take on that news? Well, I, I mean, I guess it is surprising in the sense that here should have been pretty loyal to the platform because of the deep relationships there between Microsoft and, and Nokia. But um, I don't know. I mean, the idea that another high-profile app is leaving the platform isn't all that surprising. I just, I just don't know where Windows Mobile goes from here. No pun intended. Mm -hmm. That was inevitable, yeah. right? One of us was going to do it was. first. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, agreed. I mean, it's funny. I, I've talked about two problems as they relate to apps on Windows and, and the mobile version of Windows in particular. One of them is the app gap, and the other one is the app lag. And you know, this just kind of increases the app gap in that there are apps that never make their way to Windows, and then there are the occasional apps that have been there and then leave again, like this one. Um, the other one is the app lag in that things take a very long time to arrive on Windows and the mobile flavor of Windows in particular. And just this week, Twitter announced that it finally has an app for Windows 10 for mobile devices you know, several months after that platform launched. Twitter should have been one of those things that was there from the beginning. It's a no-brainer. It's one of the top 10 apps on every platform, um, especially when you exclude games. Um, and yet it wasn't there. And it's another great example of how long it still takes things to arrive for Windows 10 and Windows 10 for mobile specifically. So, you know, both of those issues, the app gap and the app lag, both being kind of highlighted by this news this week. And I suspect it's just going to keep getting worse and worse over time. The Twitter app is especially interesting because it's good news that actually plays badly, right? I mean, you can't mm -hmm. exactly brag about the fact that Twitter's finally on the platform if it's been right. delayed by so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's one of those funny ones where... 
like it's there, but most people's reaction is going to be, you mean it wasn't there already? Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of funny news to, to try to promote. Uh, our second news roundup topic is the announcement by Sony that their virtual reality uh, headset will go on sale soon. Um, they announced the pricing, which is $399 for the uh, kind of core of that solution. You need a camera, which won't be part of that set, um, partly because many PlayStation owners already have a camera and they didn't want to force people to buy another one, essentially. Uh, there are some controllers which are also optional and not part of the core set either. Um, this obviously follows announcements from Oculus about their solution from HTC, about the Vive headset that they'll be selling, uh, both of which are priced uh, several hundred dollars higher than this. Um, this, of course, will work with PlayStation. So, and so this is targeting the base of PlayStation customers rather than, say, PC owners in general or gaming PC owners, which is what Oculus and HTC are targeting. Um, obviously, also another entrant in all of this is Oculus's uh, Gear VR that they do jointly with Samsung. Um, uh, which is targeted at Samsung smartphones uh, from the last generation or two. And so we now have this very interesting spread of both prices with the smartphone version being the cheapest and also kind of the way that these devices uh, work together with other devices and, you know, from smartphones to PlayStations to um, high-end gaming PCs. And, you know, got a really interesting spread now and, and also the sort of target market and the kind of content that's going to be available for these different platforms is going to be quite different too so i find that very interesting i think i'll probably write something about this for tech opinions this week just kind of the spread and what it tells us about where vr is going but aaron what was your take on all of this well I, you know i think the playstation vr approach has the best chance out of any that are out there right now to take vr mainstream i mean gaming is the first and most obvious use case to get most people to care about virtual reality and mm -hmm. uh, more so than movies um, I think or television and so so I think I think the potential for gaming is really high for VR to have an entry point and PlayStation to, is, is a no-brainer in that regard and the price point isn't totally crazy I, I mean the I think one of the challenges that virtual reality has right now is that you know these are pretty expensive devices to be able to get into VR. And um, I realize it's essentially doubling the cost of a PlayStation, but I think there are going to be a lot of people who are willing to, to, to make that leap. Of course, in the end, it's all going to come down to content, but that's always been the case. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think augmented reality is another entry point that has more potential, and I think that's going to be more closely related to smartphones. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we already see sort of rudimentary versions of of augmented reality with phones like you know how you can hold up your phone your iphone and and get a, a live translation on your screen right right um I, I think augmented reality has more day-to-day -day implications for people but vr just straight pure vr i i think I, I'm really optimistic about what Sony can do, and obviously the trick is going to be getting uh, game developers to to make stuff that's really compelling. Yeah, absolutely. No, agreed. And I, I think this is going to be fascinating to watch these different companies go at it from these different perspectives. PlayStation feels like it's got a huge, or Sony's got a huge edge with that PlayStation base that they have, combined with the fact that that base obviously is all about hardcore gaming, and so that's part of the target audience for all of this. You know, Oculus and HTC are both coming at a much higher price point. Both of those also require very high-end PCs, and from everything that I've seen, the, the number of those PCs that's already out there in the market is very small. 
you know, some of those PC owners could potentially upgrade a graphics card or make other changes to existing hardware so that they would be compatible with these solutions. But, you know, that just increases the price even further. Uh, and so, you know, you've got the opposite end of the market, the smartphone version. Uh, the content's not fantastic yet. There's some stuff there, including an interesting Netflix app. Uh, but the PlayStation really feels like interesting sort of middle ground where it's not too expensive. It's well targeted at an existing base of loyal customers that know and love the brand. Uh, and obviously, Sony also has all the relationships with uh, the, the software makers as well, you know, in terms of making their own games and third-party games for PlayStation and so on, uh, that should really be able to, to make a big difference as well. So that feels like a really interesting sort of Goldilocks solution to this whole problem and, and seems like it'll probably do very well. Yeah, I agree. Um, so the third um, thing that we wanted to talk about in our news roundup this morning was... Uh, this new uh, this news this week about a company uh, which uh, makes electrocardiogram devices that work in combination with a smartphone and potentially also with the Apple Watch specifically. And so there's a company um, where uh, Vic Gondotra used to be at Google has joined this company recently and has, has brought across a couple of other former Googlers to help with this. Um, and essentially they're making these tiny little devices that work in conjunction with a smartphone or a smartwatch that allow you to do an electrocardiogram fairly uh, frequently on your body uh, without having to have massive sort of specialized equipment that you have to then go and plug yourself into. And so I find this fascinating. The reason I want to talk about it today was, uh, you know, Tim Cook was asked a while ago about, you know, would Apple ever do something with the Apple Watch that would require FDA approval? And he said they probably wouldn't for various different reasons. This is exactly the kind of device that does require FDA approval, and that's the stage that this technology's got to, is they're waiting for that approval at this point. It's been submitted. But this potentially works in conjunction with the Apple Watch, which makes it a very interesting kind of extension of the Apple Watch and what it can do, and it takes it out of the sort of fitness realm and into the health realm and true kind of health management and management of chronic conditions and so on. It seems like there's a ton of potential once you're wearing something like the Apple Watch that has the kind of capabilities that it has to add this kind of thing to it and then really add value for people who have these specialized conditions. And it, it does feel like it's going to be third parties either doing something independently and just working through the open APIs and SDKs and so on that Apple has or potentially working in closer partnership with Apple to develop this kind of stuff. But it feels like a really interesting direction for the Apple Watch specifically to go in and, and something obviously that we're going to see a lot more of uh, beyond the Apple Watch specifically as well and something that we talked about I think in our CES episode a couple of months ago. There's a lot more of this activity going on and the Apple Watch could really be an interesting part of all of that. Yeah, the Apple Watch as a platform when it comes to health is really fascinating. There's a ton of opportunity for new businesses in the medical devices space. And it's because so much of what's historically been at the core of medical devices, like an EKG machine, um, is now relatively commoditized. I mean, the fact that a watch has the power to do the computer processing necessary to give an EKG reading that's medically reliable is pretty amazing. But you still need the sensors and you still need the reliability to be validated by the FDA. And so for companies entering the medical device space where they're playing on the other side of the line, like Indotra described it, meaning the FDA approval line, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of potential there. Obviously, you have to be well-backed venture-wise. I mean, you need a lot of capital to get through FDA approvals. But from what I know about medical device approval, it's a lot less rigorous than um, actual medicines. Uh, right. pharmaceutical it's more approval. diagnostic than treatment oriented. Right. Mm, yeah. Right. I mean, there are spaces for um, 
there are space there are obviously still a lot of medical devices that are treatment based as well and but my understanding of that process is it's, it is it is somewhat faster and cheaper than getting a, a drug approved by the right. FDA and so okay, i think there's a ton of potential there especially because you know there has been increasing pressure on the FDA to streamline the medical approval process i think um, these early players are going to be ahead in a lot of ways. And so it seems like a strange, small venture for somebody as big as Gondotra to get involved in. But I think I think he and the others competing in this space see the potential for a, few, for a huge upside. And more and more we're starting to see articles like there's a guy in Canada who avoided a heart attack because of his Apple Watch. Right. You know, I mean, it was showing a, a really increased heart rate. It was sort of the first pass, and usually it's the second pass that kills people, but they don't go in to get checked because they don't know why they were all of a sudden, you know, lightheaded, feeling, right. you know, a little bit feverish. It passes, and they think, oh, that was weird, and then they and then they die of a heart attack overnight. And this guy avoided that because his Apple Watch told him that, you know, his heart rate was up was over 200 beats a minute. And mm. and, and I think, you know, the potential for that to be with us all the time uh, is a huge opportunity for the businesses right. that can get through the regulatory hurdles to make this stuff available. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so the, the name of the company is Alive Core. Um, there's a Recode article about it today. We'll link to that in the show notes. But we're worth checking that out as an example of uh, this trend that we've been talking about. So let's move on to our middle topic today. And again, we're dispensing with our usual question of the week format and just having more of a back and forth between the two of us. And, and we're focusing this on uh, Apple's event next Monday um, in Cupertino, uh, at which it's expected to announce a uh, smaller iPhone, um, generally referred to as iPhone SE, uh, an update to the iPad Airline, potentially with repositioning as an iPad Pro. Uh, and a couple of other bits and pieces as well. And so we're just going to review each of those over the next few minutes. And then again, our third topic will be what's going on with Apple News this week. Um, as far as the event preview goes, I wrote a piece last week for Tech Opinions about the iPhone SE and how that might be positioned. And one of the things I talked about there was that both with the iPhone and the iPad that Apple's going to announce here, in some ways the specs and the features and everything else are, are less interesting in both cases than how these devices are positioned in the overall lineup of uh, the iPhone portfolio and the iPad portfolio respectively and how they're priced um, because that really tells us a lot about kind of Apple's strategy and what they're trying to achieve here. And so in my piece last week, I tried to predict what Apple might do with the iPhone SE uh, around all of this. And uh, my take is uh, this is about addressing a need that's really emerged since the iPhone 6 launched. When Apple launched the iPhone 6, they basically abandoned the 4-inch size, at least for new devices. They obviously kept some older devices in that size around. But they abandoned that size from the perspective of kind of top-of-the-line new devices. And one of the reasons they were able to do that is basically nobody else is making those devices either, at least at the premium end of the market in Android or any other platform. Um, there's a handful on Windows Phone. But again, we've already talked about how, how irrelevant that platform is today. But uh, on Android, really none of their competitors are producing phones in that size either. So they could afford to kind of ignore it for a while. What's become apparent in the year and a half since then is that there are lots of people who are just holding on to older four-inch devices that just do not want to move to one of these new larger devices. And so the real threat, as it turns out, wasn't competition so much as non-consumption, that people are just kind of holding on to their devices for longer. And so my theory is that this, this device is really intended to jumpstart the upgrade cycle among those customers that are determined to keep a four-inch device 
and that it's launching at this time of year because uh, those customers are less likely to compare about having the care about having the latest and greatest devices that are launched in the fall every year, uh, and therefore this is a great fit for, for them and a great way to boost sales also in a time of year when Apple generally doesn't sell as many devices. They're usually about a, a quarter to a third off the high point from Q4 and Q1. And so Q2 and Q3 are great quarters to have a new device in the market that can appeal to some of these people that won't have upgraded for a couple of years. Uh, and I think that's really what this is about. This isn't so much about emerging markets or, or getting into a really much lower price point. You know, this is going to be roughly the same price point as, say, the iPhone 5S, for example, uh, and other sort of phones that have been in the sort of history of having older phones sticking around for a while. Um, in the same piece, and we perhaps talk about this a bit more, I, I said that I thought their strategy for lower price points was going to be refurbished phones and selling those at a significant discount to the retail price in certain markets like India and elsewhere, but we'll perhaps come back to that. But Aaron, what's your take on this whole iPhone SE thing? Yeah, I, you know, the truth is, based on the what we're seeing predicted to be in the feature set for the iPhone SE back in September when I upgraded from a 5S to a 6S, I probably would have upgraded to the SE instead. Um, and I say that only because I like the 4-inch size phone better than, than the 6 and definitely more than the 6 Plus uh, or the 6S and 6S Plus. But, um, I think, but I think part of the reason the 5C can't be called a failure was because it's true that people wanted something cheaper. They didn't want the best. But I think there are a lot of people who still want something new. Right. I mean, so they, they don't want to spend a lot of money on a phone, but they want it. But they really enjoyed the feeling of having a new phone. And it's true that, you know, it's you know, if I were to buy a, 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 an iPhone 5S today, it would be new in the sense that nobody else has used it. But it still feels really old technology wise. Right. And I think that's where the genius in this SE approach is going to manifest itself, because it essentially moves down the, the you know, the price line to people who who, you know, don't want the biggest, best, fastest, but they do like the feeling of having something that's at least new. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think having Apple Pay uh, is, you know, is, is a reason that people would buy this phone instead of a 5S. I think, uh, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of, I think that there's a lot that's smart about this. In fact, what I won't be surprised by is, is if this is the, the format that sticks for Apple because right. the 5C felt like an experiment in a lot of ways, especially because mm -hmm. they, when they switched to the six, they didn't, you know, they didn't bring the 5C along right. to say like have an iPhone 6C, um, mm -hmm. which is just weird. Cause then it sounds like, it sounds like iPhone sexy, but um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was the reason. No, but I mean, in all seriousness, I think this is, this feels like a strategy that could stick as Apple keeps moving along. I, I don't think, that, you know, we saw a lot of sort of evolution in phone sizes over the last few years, and I think that that has pretty much settled into place. I don't think you're going to see right. a lot change when it comes to screen sizes. Mm -hmm. And so this is Apple sort of, you know, creating a new space in the market for the people, like you said, that prefer a smaller phone. But I think also for the people who don't want to have to spend a lot on a phone, but like the feeling of something that's at least new technology-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think there's something to be said for Apple going with a newer device with better specs. I mean, A, it helps to increase scale on the current um, components, which obviously brings the cost down over time as well. 
Um, but also um, the worry is that if you sell these older phones into emerging markets where people then are going to hold on to them for three years as well, suddenly you've got five and six-year-old phones making up a significant portion of your overall installed base. And that's really tough when you want to keep moving iOS forward, for example, to, to constantly be aware of these people that won't be able to upgrade to it or, or you have to hold things back so that they can upgrade to these newer versions of iOS and so on. And so putting a, a lower-cost phone that nonetheless has fairly modern specs in it into the market instead helps to uh, make sure that you don't have that kind of abandonment of these older devices and the people who still have them in various markets. So I think that's part of it too. Um, clearly though, you know, given the specs and so on, this thing is not going to be dirt cheap. You know, it's, it's going to be probably at least $100 less than the iPhone 6S. Um, and I've predicted that it may even be $200 less at $450 retail. Um, somewhere between 450 and 550 seems very likely. Um, you could easily justify kind of $100 less on the basis that that's the price differential between the, the, the S and the, and the S Plus right now. Um, but you know, given that the specs aren't quite on par with the, the head top of the line devices, that there's a justification for making it slightly cheaper than that as well and potentially replacing the 5S in the lineup for the next year or so. Um, so I think that's really interesting. But yeah, we're seeing a change in positioning. We're seeing, you know, over the last couple of years, a move from one new device to two new devices to now potentially three sort of newish devices uh, at once in the market. And so the, the iPhone portfolio is really kind of um, expanding in this way with multiple different SKUs. Um, and, you know, that makes sense as the, the size of the iPhone install base grows, as the number of different markets and different types of customers that Apple's going after grows as well, makes sense that they need to diversify that base. And in some ways, and I think we'll talk about this when we talk about the iPad 2, you know, this is now following the pattern that we've seen with other uh, product lines in Apple's overall device lineup, whether that's the Mac or, or other products that they've had in the past. Well, it'll also be interesting if this works and if this strategy sticks. It'll be interesting to see what happens calendar-wise if they bring the SE refresh calendar to sync up with the flagship, you know, refreshing, or if it will instead be staggered where they do the SE refresh, you know, in the spring and then the iPhone 6 or 7 or whatever is going to be next um, in the fall. I could see benefits to both approaches, but uh, it is going to be something Apple needs to think about. I could also see the SE refresh just being slower as a refresh cycle, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I could see it being an every two years, every year and a half thing rather than right. an annual thing like Apple does with its flagship iPhones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that could be interesting. I mean, of course, this fall, we're going to get a new form factor. So instantaneously, this phone may look different um, from the latest phones. And so how long do you keep that going? And, you know, we saw the Apple Watch launch in the spring last year, but it looks like that's moving to a full timeline again um, this year. So, you know, is this a one-off? Um, you know, the, the 5C obviously was announced in the fall. They didn't refresh that at all, as we've already talked about. You know, does this get replaced every year? Does it get replaced every two? Does it move to um, the fall? You know, does it get refreshed a year and a half from now? You know, so many interesting possibilities for, for where this could go. And I bet even Apple doesn't know at this point, to be honest. I think like the 5C, this will probably be something of an experiment where they'll see what works and so on. I do think there's value in having at least some devices that launch in the spring just so that you don't get this massive... Uh, hype around Q4 where Apple struggles to meet demand for everything that it sells. Um, you know, having something launched off cycle really helps smooth out the revenue line, which is 
something that Apple's really trying to talk up with its services business and so on. You know, this could help with that in the in the calendar Q2 and Q3 in particular, which are very quiet usually for iPhone sales. So I'm interested to see how that evolves. Well, when the refresh comes in, it'll be interesting to see which features from the flagship work their way down to the SE and which never make mm -hmm. it at all. Right. For example, I could picture 3D Touch never actually making it there, you know, or at least not for a little while. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, I think it, it'll be interesting to see what Apple, well, I, I should say what the customers that buy the iPhone SE, it'll be interesting to see what they care about most and what is really driving yeah. demand for them. Right, and, and I think, you know, there's this constant worry about cannibalization. I mean, Apple talks about, the fact that it doesn't worry about cannibalization when they launch a completely new product, but obviously within a single product line, you have to be very careful about suddenly driving people who would have been willing to spend six hundred and fifty dollars down to a product that's only four hundred and fifty dollars. And so, I was one making of them. sure that there's a <laughs> right, right, making sure that there's a disparity between in features and performance between the top of the line device and the lower end devices is important in you know, justifying the price differential, differential for one thing, but also making sure that you don't sap too much demand from the higher end devices when you bring in a, a lower price device like this. Right. Let's move on to talk about the iPad Air. And, and this is interesting because even though this is an update to the iPad Air line, um, would nominally be the iPad Air 3, um, there are reports that this is actually going to be positioned as an iPad Pro, so sort of little brother or sister to the 12-inch iPad Pro that launched in the fall last year, um, which would imply various things. It would imply compatibility with the Apple Pencil, would imply that there would be a smaller version of the smart keyboard as well, and this would be compatible with that. It would also imply a, a significant spec bump because the iPad Pro, uh, you know, the accessories are one distinguishing feature, but the sheer kind of power of the device is another big one. And so I would expect that this new 10-inch iPad might well get some pretty big spec bump as well to go along with that. Um, you know, if it does, there's interesting questions about what happens to pricing as well, because the iPad Pro is uh, quite a bit more expensive than the iPad Air has been. Um, you know, does that mean that this product goes up in price? What does it mean to... Um, you know, the iPad Air brand, does that just go away or do they actually keep the iPad Air 2 in market as the kind of representative of that part of the product line? Um, what happens to the iPad mini? Does that just kind of get orphaned as the only non-pro iPad? And, and, you know, do they still sell those in any numbers and when do they update that next? So there's so many interesting questions that, that this idea of the iPad Air becoming iPad Pro raises. And Aaron, I know you have some thoughts about all of this. Well, I think what's going to end up happening, and this is, again, just a prediction, but I think what's going to end up happening is you get a division like you have in the laptop line, where you have a consumer version and then a prosumer version of the laptop, right? Because you have MacBook Pros, and we've had MacBook Airs for a long time. I realize the new MacBook kind of upsets that, but it, at this point, it just seems like it's an experiment, the regular MacBook the really light and thin one, that's just going to feed into the other lines, I think. But um, I, th I could totally picture an iPad Pro line with two different sizes and then an iPad Air line with two different sizes, but them being smaller, right? So the iPad Air 2, as we know it today, would be the bigger of the iPad Air line. And then the mini gets updated, essentially called the smaller version of the iPad Air. And, and then that division feels cleaner and clearer there's there's a there's an easier way for consumers to understand the differences involved 
the feature sets are different enough that it, that it's a division that makes sense because the pro, like you said, is a lot about the internal power, but also about these sort of power accessories, which are the sorts of things that pros would care more about. Um, Anyway, it, it, it's a division that feels natural. Whether or not Apple actually goes with it is hard to say. They have a funny way, uh, and we were talking about this before we started recording. Apple has a funny way of not being super loyal to the the. I mean, they're very loyal to the to the brand category uh, names like iPad, you know, iPhone, iPod, MacBook, all that. But they're not super loyal to the names they use as subcategories. There, I mean. The way that, you know, it, it, this goes all the way back to when they had the iPod Mini and they came out with the iPod Nano. I mean, they really easily could have called the, the Nano the next version of the iPod Mini, but they chose not to. And so it'll be interesting to see the way they kind of rejigger those sub those sub-brands within the iPad line. But but it, that that's a division to me that makes sense, whether or not they actually execute that way, who knows. But um, it also is interesting that there is a pro line at all. Right, especially now that it's going to be in two screen sizes, and that it sort of goes, you know, it points out that this whole like future of computing perspective that Tim Cook has talked about before, that Apple's taking it really seriously, and I think you know it's inevitable that that a lot of people are going to be using just tablets, and in Apple's case, just iPads for right. pretty much all of their computing, you know, that is today being done by desktops and laptops. Yeah, and so I you know, I I think if this does happen, I think there has it has to be seen as Apple's strategy for jump starting the upgrade cycle for the the mid-size iPad because we've seen that upgrade cycle appear longer and longer and longer as people hold on to these devices for longer and longer and I think the only way to really make a meaningful difference to that upgrade cycle is to turn the iPad, 10-inch iPad, into something new. And I think that's what the iPad Pro was at the 12-inch size, which obviously was completely new. But, you know, you could see them doing something similar with the 10-inch side. But this is no longer just an iPad. This is an iPad that can potentially replace many of the functions that you use your laptop for. And that makes it different. And it's subtle. Obviously, it's less different than a completely new size, which is what the iPad Pro was back in the fall. But the concept is similar in that, you know, this is a more powerful device. This is, has split-screen multitasking. It has a keyboard and a pencil that are optimized to work with it and all the rest of it. And suddenly this is more of a, a laptop replacement device. And that could drive an upgrade cycle. It could obviously drive some new customers for the iPad as well. Um, and so I think that's really what this would be about. And then the question is just, you know, as we've been talking about, what happens to the rest of the iPad line? You know, do the upgrade cycles just continue to be very long there and they don't really worry about that and put most of the emphasis on the pro line here? And this really feels like a change in the identity of what the iPad line is and can do and how it will be positioned by Apple, not just within the iPad portfolio, but as a part of their overall portfolio of devices and how people might use each of those. So I, I think this is going to be a really interesting thing to watch on Monday. I think another thing that this points to is that I mean, Apple moving this into sort of a primary computing device category um, draws our mind over to the refresh cycles on the, you know, desktop and laptop lines, and those are really slow. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our right. family, we're still using an iMac that I think, I honestly think it's seven years old now, maybe eight, mm -hmm. and we're still using our family because it still works, you know, right. to Apple's credit, it still works and runs and, you know, is... is sufficient for all the things that we have in mind and 
and in our, in our, you know, for the needs of the people in our family that are using it. And, uh, and, and I think the iPad is much more in that category. So I do think there's going to be a temporary bump in the refresh cycle. I think you're going to see it move the other direction for a little while. Um, but in the end, I do think that it's going to just settle into something more like four to five years as a replacement cycle, like you mm -hmm. see in the desktop and iMac, uh, desktop and laptop lines, um, right. which to me feels right because I think it reflects the way people tend to use iPads. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think these are the two main things that we're going to see announced next week. I think there's a good chance that we'll see some new bands or other sort of partnerships with other fashion brands around the Apple Watch as well. Um, given that we don't know exactly what those are and we, we've seen some of that previously with the last Apple event, I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time on that. Um, you know, one thing that we probably won't see any of is an update to the Mac line. And that is something that we've talked about in previous episodes that you would have expected to see something like this by now, and we haven't. But Aaron, I know that that's something that's kind of near and dear to your heart. So yeah, only because I'm comment still holding on to a four-year-old MacBook Pro, and I'm waiting to update it. Um, now, speaking to the right, the, the laptop refresh cycle. Um, mm. Now, the, the, th the thing about the, um, the Macs that feels weird is that they're not, there haven't been any le rumor uh, leaks about you know, updates, especially to the laptop line. I think the fact that the, that the mobile appropriate versions of Skylake across almost the entire MacBook line for uh, Apple, those, you know, Skylake chips have been shipping uh, for a little while now. They're showing up uh, in other manufacturers' laptops. Um, and so it feels a little strange that there haven't been any leaks about uh, new laptops being announced next Monday. But if it's not... I suspect it's not on Intel side of things. Um, this is this is a laptop upgrade that has a lot waiting in the wings. I mean, you've got USB-C connections, right, uh, versus uh, the the much 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 older USB connections in the current laptop line. You've got Thunderbolt three, um, and uh, and those changes in addition to the Skylake upgrade, which is a pretty substantial one. I think they point to the likelihood that Apple is planning on a, on a form factor refresh um, in the MacBook Pro and probably in the MacBook Air. In fact, I wonder if they're going to get rid of the Air designation or they'll bring the MacBook, you know, the slim MacBook technologies into the Air line. Um, one way or another, I think that what we saw with the MacBook last year was essentially a hint at what Apple is hoping to do with their laptop line. And if there are no new laptops next week, I suspect that if there, if we can call it a delay, although it's always kind of ridiculous to call it a delay when Apple hasn't even announced the product. Right. But uh, if we can call it a delay from our expectations, I think it's probably more related to form factor changes than anything else. I also know there's a core group of uh, Mac users, and I'm one of them, that is feeling really anxious about a Retina Thunderbolt display. And uh, that's mostly been um, a problem because of the power inside um, the laptops not being able to handle so much uh, video throughput, but also um, the, the connectors required to make that successful. And those are pretty much in place now. I mean, there's you know, more arcane details about whether it's you know, single stream or multi-stream transport to get the display working. But, it seems like the, the things are in place for a Thunderbolt Retina display. Um, but 
it just feels weird that we haven't had any hints or rumors, especially from Mark Garman at 9to5Mac about this. So, in fact, I think he said recently that, that there will not be any Mac up, updates next week. So, mm. I don't know. I, I mean, I realize there aren't very many people who are interested in that as, as there are in iPad and iPhone um, updates. Right. But uh, there are still a lot of us out there that, you know, are looking forward to the next iteration of MacBook Pros and Thunderbolt displays. Right, right, absolutely. All right. Um, I think the only other thing to mention briefly is that this event's going to be happening the day before the next hearing in the Apple FBI case um, that we've talked about quite a bit already. We don't want to rehash all of that here, but it's just interesting to talk about whether maybe we might see any reference to this on Monday. I think, to my mind, my prediction is that it doesn't. That the word FBI never gets mentioned. Um, the word, the phrase court case never gets mentioned, but that security and privacy are major themes either in Tim Cook's opening sort of monologue and update on, on all things Apple or sprinkled throughout as they introduce these new products and so on. You know, I, I suspect the theme will be largely about privacy and security and how much Apple cares about them and how much they're built into its products rather than necessarily taking a product event to talk about those other things which would then potentially detract from what should be the focus of that event. What's your prediction for that, Aaron? No, that feels right to me. I think it's too big of an audience for Apple to give up the opportunity to to make its case and obviously not in detail like you're saying about you know the 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 case going on in California right now but i think to sort of make its broader case you know the idea that apple cares about security for the sake of its customers and it just seems like an opportunity that's too big to pass up but like you said i think it's going to be a more general term certainly not making any specific accusations i mean it's the truth is it's not just the us government that's pushing apple on this it's a lot of gov other governments as well um, mm -hmm. in fact the chinese government and the fbi just got together to try to coordinate how they're going to approach this strategically with apple and so i, I think apple's going to make a broader case and i think it'll be brief but i think it'll be very sincere tim cook is mm -hmm. good at that um, making sort of in, sincere expressions of Apple's values. Yeah. And I, I think that is coming. I also am predicting a, one or two jokes kind of jabbing at the issue, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. lighthearted yeah. and playful, but I just mm -hmm. have a hard time picturing Craig Federighi passing up a chance to make a joke about security <laughs> and government <laughs> watching you. Yes, to the extent that he even speaks. I mean, this is a hardware rather than a software That's event. That's true. So but they will have the iOS and OS X updates coming out next week. And so I suspect yeah, he's going to yeah. get, you know, 10 minutes yeah, get a of stage preview time. Of that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay, well, our final topic uh, today is uh, the updates mm -hmm. to Apple News this week and uh, specifically the fact that Apple News is now open to anybody who wants to publish to that platform. Uh, and then also the fact that uh, news article-like advertisements will be uh, permitted as well. So essentially this is Apple News introducing native advertising on the platform as well. Um, they're both interesting announcements, so we'll talk about both of them. I just wanted to share a little bit about my experience with Apple News as a, a publisher and as a blogger. And um, you know, in addition to writing for various other publications, we, we do have the Beyond Devices blog as well, which Aaron has occasionally contributed to as well, uh, and which I mostly write for. 
Um, and I submitted it months ago to Apple News and have been through several rounds of that process and it's been rejected several times for different reasons, never very well explained and at least some of the time rejected because I'd already tried to submit a different version of it and then having corrected the problem was told that it was a duplicate of an existing request. So the approval process for even um, setting up a channel has been cumbersome to say the least. That, that's now been lifted. I, I resubmitted yesterday and, and got an approval within an hour or two so that's solved, but now uh, what you do then is you publish to that channel in sort of draft form and then you submit that for approval and that's now the, the stage that I'm waiting at. So the approval process has kind of shifted down the line somewhat, but there still is an approval process. It's not completely open in the way that say WordPress or other completely open platforms for publishing on are open. Um, and that's consistent with obviously Apple's approach to the App Store and other platforms like that. But it's interesting that, that there is still that approval process and I'm curious to see how long that takes to work its way through. Um, the other thing that from a personal experience is interesting to me is there's now three different ways to publish to Apple News. There's the RSS method that's been open to uh, virtually anybody um, for manually adding something to Apple News uh, that basically just pulls your RSS feed in a very sort of plain text way um, with embedded images and republishes that to Apple News. There's very little customization or styling or anything like that around it. Uh, the second option is to, to use a CMS like WordPress or Drupal or something like that where you can get a plugin that then reformats things for Apple News into the JSON language that Apple News understands and, uh, and then publishes those. And that, that gives you a bit more control over the styling, but it's still largely sort of a, an automated translation of one format into another. And then the third option is this new sort of WYSIWYG editor that Apple has for, for publishing posts on a one-off basis. And so if you want to, you can now create posts on a one-by-one -one basis through Apple News Publisher. Um, where you get to pick a header image, you get to pick your title, and there are some basic styling options for the whole article. You can't style individual elements yet. You can add links and embed images and all the rest of it, uh, and that's another way to publish. What's interesting is that with all these different ways to publish, there's no sort of mixing of those things. You either do one or the other, and so if you have posts that you create, say, in WordPress, and it has an embedded video, you know, that translation may not work well. There's no way to go in and manually tweak the Apple News version of that post such that the embedded video works. Um, and so there's some little funny things like that. The Apple News publisher is still a bit awkward. It is a very basic editor. Um, and you are uh, editing posts on a one-by-one -one basis rather than saying, this is what I want the style to be for all of my posts, which feels a bit funny because uh, it's going to look a little odd if all your posts are formatted differently. Um, and it's buried within iCloud.com. It feels very kind of clunky as an interface. And if you actually want to preview anything, unless you have Xcode and Java and various other things installed on your Mac, uh, you can't preview them on your Mac. So if you actually want to see what the article is going to look like in Apple News on an iPhone or on an iPad, you have to send yourself uh, a preview link to your iOS device and then go and preview it there, which I found to be pretty uh, clunky as well. So. The theory is great here. I'm looking forward to, to publishing to Apple News and so on, but the practice is, is a little cumbersome still, uh, and there are a few things, a few kinks and things that I think Apple's going to have to work out over time. Yeah, you know, the, everything you just described, I think, shows why Apple still has an uphill battle with news. Um, and I don't think it's because... Um, because they're facing especially stiff competition. I mean, these alternative methods of delivering news besides through web pages, you know, this is all still pretty new stuff. I mean, 
there are obviously competitors on on iOS for for delivering news in a different way, but rather than through the web. But um, but I but I think the problem Apple has here is is more of an internal one rather than an external one, and it's because Apple is many things, but they're not fast. And and you know, advertising is a category generally, but news specifically, right? Where you have an ad-driven business model. Um, news specifically is an area where you have to be fast, and it, you know. I, and I realize once publishers sort of get into the platform, then news can be happening quickly. But, but you know, just as a general strategy, Apple has to be fast. I, the the news articles, for example, are largely hand curated, or at least that's the way Apple describes it. Mm-hmm. And that means a person has to look at this stuff and make judgments. And if you're going to right. be processing now that it's open to all these other publishers. If you're going to be mm-hmm. processing this, you have to have a massive number of people just constantly, constantly mm-hmm. reading and promoting and then figuring out. I mean, you, you essentially are duplicating an editorial board, but mm-hmm. for everything that's written, not just for one publication. Right. right. And, and so, you know, the idea that Apple can move quickly in this, I'm not optimistic. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I think, you know, Apple being slow benefits them in all kinds of ways. It, it, it's rescued them from jumping on kind of pointless trends like netbooks, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps them to be more methodical so the stuff they put out is higher quality. They'll wait until they know it's good. But right. I think in this space, when it's about content, um, th- being slow is not going to help the company succeed in the new space. And, uh, and unless they can get really fast which also means occasionally screwing up and put you know, and and not having total control. Uh, I have a hard time picturing news becoming the platform that people turn to by default. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I use it a fair amount, but I I feel like it could be a lot better to meet my needs. I feel like the curation and the sort of the control that I have over it's too limited. Either I go in publication by publication or I kind of trust the main sort of for you feed, which feels like a weird mix still of stuff that I do care about and things that I don't care about. And often several articles in a row that are basically about exactly the same news story. And and what I really want is kind of say, these are the big stories, here are the five best articles on that story. Or to say, you know, here's my topic, which is tech or whatever. And here's, you know, the tech sections of all the big publications that I've decided to follow all in one big clump. So I can see again, what are the big stories that each of them has and dip into those. And it, uh, the, the approach that they've taken makes sense for kind of the casual user, but it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're really interested in certain topics or things like that, at least not yet. And the, the human curation is going to take a heck of a lot of work to get there um, for what I want out of it. Um, I do still find some use in it. It's still nice to be able to go to kind of a neutral site to see, okay, what's going on in the world, and then I can pick which publication I want to read about stuff. But um, it's still not great. Uh, one aspect I have enjoyed is, is um, at the weekend they do some kind of long reads that they recommend, and I found some really interesting articles that way. Um, but for the most part, it still feels lacking, and there's some kludgy stuff in it, like things that have embedded Instagram posts or videos or whatever that I think have just been translated automatically from various CMS systems uh, don't show up properly. And so you have to kind of open that article in Safari to see the embeds. And so just simple stuff like that that really needs to be fixed if it's to be really usable in time. Um, I do see some promise there. I think um, perhaps I'm slightly more optimistic about it than you are, but I absolutely agree that 
has a lot of work still to do and it's not yet clear whether Apple will make the investment that it needs to to make it what it can be. Well, and just one other quick comment before we move on from this. Um, the other funny thing about news is that Apple could solve a lot of its problems in a different way, which is by making it much more social. But that's also something Apple's really bad at. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, yeah. you know, they either need to be fast or they need to be better at social or ideally they'd be better at both with this news platform. Mm -hmm. and, and thus far they haven't shown to be good at either. So, Right, right, absolutely. Okay, well, in the interest of time, I think we'll wrap up that conversation there. We're going to skip our weekly pick this week. Um, we tend to do that in combination with the question of the week because we take it in turns to do those two things. So we'll skip it this week. We may do so next week as well when we'll be covering the uh, Apple event in, in retrospect as well. And so we thank you for being with us for today's discussion. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'll have links to some of the things that we've talked about on the show page at podcast.beyonddevices. Uh, look for the Beyond Devices blog and podcast to show up in Apple News at some point in the near future, hopefully. Um, we'll update you when that happens. And uh, other than that, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks.